Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. The name and the person of Jesus is the theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's all about Him and the salvation that is brought to us through Him. So the first 39 books of the Bible we know as the Old Testament point forward to who Jesus is. They give us glimpses of, of who He is and who He will be as He comes in the earthly manifestation of God Himself in flesh. There are over 300 prophecies or allusions that point to the coming of Christ. And then Jesus comes. And then the last 27 books of the Bible point back to him in graphic detail of who he is, what he is, and what he has come to accomplish, and that he will one day return. So all of those books point back to him, and Jesus stands as the centerpiece of the Bible. Everything builds up to him, everything points back to him, and he is magnified through all of Scripture. And so when we're talking about pictures, promises, and previews of the Messiah, I want you to think of it in these terms. In the Old Testament, we have a searchlight shining into the future. Looking for the one who is to come. A searchlight highlights images, movements, locations, just picture that when, today when we are in the Old Testament, that's a searchlight. Then we get to the New Testament, picture those passages as spotlights. A spotlight is closer, it's, it's brighter, it, it highlights the, the whole image, it, it reveals details, it, it shows expressions, it, it captures the moment. And so in the Old Testament, we have searchlights shining through the centuries, but in the New Testament, we have a spotlight shining upon the one who has come that fulfills all of those glimpses of the searchlights. He is here. And we look back to him, and we look forward to his return with the spotlights of the New Testament. So every time I refer you back to Psalms, remember, that's a searchlight. And then when we move to the New Testament, remember that's a spotlight that defines what the searchlight pointed to. So let's turn our Bibles today to Luke chapter 24, the final chapter of the gospel according to Luke. It's in this context that we're going to read in a moment where we're reminded of what they were referring to even in the New Testament as the Scriptures. When Jesus opened the scroll in the synagogue, it was Isaiah the prophet from the Old Testament. When they quoted the Scriptures, 
they, they quoted from the Old Testament. When they took a text and, and preached like Peter did on the day of Pentecost, he, he drew from the Old Testament because that was what they had at their disposal. They were learned, they learned those Old Testament scriptures and they, they saw Jesus there. But just a reminder, there's enough in the Old Testament to bring someone to salvation. Just think about what a clearer image we even have. But, but in this passage, it'll remind us of those sections of the Old Testament that were not known as the Old Testament at that point. Things like the law, the prophets, the Psalms, which would refer to those books surrounding the Psalms as well. So let's look together at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 48, as we focus on Old Testament pictures, previews and promises of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the Psalms. Jesus says this to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And now, Father, we pray that the eyes of our understanding would be opened, that by your Holy Spirit we might comprehend the Scriptures. And so I pray that you would speak through me, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament. Over 100 times, Psalms is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament. Over 100 times. You find someone referring to something from the Psalms, drawing from images of the Psalms, quoting passages from the Psalms over 100 times in the New Testament. That's how important the book of Psalms is. Now, typically, we think of Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible, which is true. That's where you can go to school and learn uh, how to express your emotions in prayer because every facet of the human emotion is captured in the Psalms, from the deepest depths to the highest heights and everything in between. You find it in the Psalms. But 
also in the Psalms, in the midst of those prayers and those hymns of praise, there are great searchlights that point through the centuries toward the coming of the Messiah. And that's what I want us to focus on today. So let me give you the sermon in a sentence. You didn't think I could do that. The sermon in a sentence is this. The earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ was orchestrated by divine providence, not random coincidence. That's what we believe, having come to acknowledge this as the word of God. Many would look at our personal existence as a coincidence, as the result of chance and nature. However, we believe from the word of God that no human life is an accident. God designed life. God gives life. God is life. He is all about life. And it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that you exist. It's not a coincidence that you're here. It's by his providence that he has brought you to this place. This gathering will probably never assemble with the same people in the same room again. But for today, by his providence, he has brought us together. So if you believe that God providentially works in human hearts and history, then ultimately... The biggest picture of that is the fact that the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ was orchestrated by divine providence, not by random coincidence. And so today I want us to dig into the Old Testament in the book of Psalms and strengthen our muscle of belief and understanding and comprehension of the scriptures. Jesus said that he taught them that which was about him and fulfilled in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Last week we focused on the law. Today we dig into the Psalms. So let's look first of all at Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Perhaps you're familiar with Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates therein day and night. And it goes on and talks about a godly man. Then you come to Psalm 2, and, and you look at that psalm, and in the the midst of David writing that psalm in the face of defeat, he celebrates victory by the searchlight looking through history forward, history yet to be. This is what you find in Psalm 2. I, I, this is not about defeat. This is about the coronation of the Lord's anointed. I looked at the wrong title there. Notice what it says in verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss or revere the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You see how the psalm turns and begins to talk about the begotten son of God? It talks about his appointment and his prominence and how based upon how you respond to the Son, you will receive from God either a wrath or redemption. And so it's a, a searchlight that points ahead. I will declare to the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now when you come into the New Testament for the spotlight, you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 35. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 35. The context here is the angel has appeared to Mary. A young Jewish maiden who is betrothed or engaged to Joseph. To be betrothed or engaged would be the term we would use in that Jewish culture would mean that they had been chosen for one another. They were going to be wed. But they spent a year-long betrothal or engagement where they were never alone, always chaperoned, and they interacted together, becoming familiar with each other and with each other's families. And and that was a year-long process. And in the midst of that, Mary is alone by herself and the angel appears. Just think about the last time somebody was in a room or somebody walked into a room and you were unaware of their presence and when you were made aware of their presence, how that startled you. Can you imagine, here's this young maiden, a male angel shows up uh, looking rather ordinary. She didn't hear the fluttering of wings or see the reflection of his halo. It was nothing like that. He just shows up in the room without all of the trappings of that. And he says to her in verse 28, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. In other words, she was going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What did he just say? And then notice verse 30. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus or Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I do not know a man, I have not had intimate relations with a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That's why Jesus is known in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the one begotten of God. He is the only begotten Son, we read in John 3.16. He is the only one who has experienced that supernatural birth of a virgin. He's the only one that, that remains sinless and pure throughout his life on this earth. He is the only begotten Son of the Father. John tells us in chapter 1, full of grace and truth. So in Psalm chapter 2, speaking ahead as a searchlight of the Messiah, there's that searching for the one who is to be the begotten Son. Today I have begotten you. And here this Jewish maiden finds favor with God, not based upon herself, but based upon the the generous blessing of God in her life and the Son of God, Jesus, is to be born. What a great picture. But here's here's the reality. The begotten Son is the uncreated one. I love to read biographies. I, I love to read presidential biographies, uh, war biographies. I, I love to read especially those men in history that God has used mightily and those eras when God moved in special ways. You know what's in common with all of those sports biographies? Any biography you read, typically it'll tell you when they were born, when they died. Because that's when the story starts. You might hear some ancestry back here, but but sometimes we skim past all that to get to where the person was actually born. And the the longer they spend back here on current biographies means they they don't know a whole lot about up here sometimes. But I kind of speed read that. I skim through that to get to the, the birth, where his life started, how it developed, and then... It comes to the end of his life because everyone's life begins and ends except for Jesus. He's the uncreated one. He is the eternal God the Son. We believe in the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one, 
one of those mysteries of the scripture that's undeniable and unsearchable. There's no way to adequately explain it. We try with so many images and they, they fail because they coexist. They always exist as one. He's the uncreated one, now the begotten one, the begotten son. That, that boggles the mind, doesn't it? Because you, you look at the manger and a typical person that looks at the manger would say, well, that's where his life began. No, Jesus' life did not begin when he was born and his life did not end when he died. He's eternal He's the uncreated one. But bringing about our salvation, the uncreated one became the begotten son of God, the son of man in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, so that he could bring about our salvation to set us free from sin, death, and hell. Just think about the transition from the headquarters of heaven to the stench of a stable. That's the journey the uncreated one traveled becoming the begotten son. So never, never be deceived. His life did not begin when he was born. And it did not end when he died. The begotten one became the uncreated one became the begotten son. So you have the searchlight, then the spotlight. Let's look at the second point I want us to see today. This obscure birth will bring joy through the whole earth. Throughout the whole earth. Two things to remember are Three empty things. The manger is empty. He didn't stay a baby. He became a sinless substitute for our sin. The cross is empty. He died on the cross, but the cross is empty. He paid in full our sin debt. The tomb is empty because he rose again. And because all three of those things are empty, we have the ability to be full today by the very presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. And so here as we contemplate the birth of Christ and we look at the searchlight, the the searchlights quickly move from in Psalms from that element of being the begotten Son to who He would be and what He would accomplish. And so the next thing we're going to see is that this obscure birth results in bringing joy throughout the whole earth. In Psalm 118, <coughs> find a beautiful picture of that reality. Psalm 118. It begins with this word, Oh. It's a call of attention. It's look at this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. 
It never stops. His mercy never ceased throughout the Old Testament. It it endured. It, It crossed the chasm of 400 years of silence. It endures. It was expressed in the coming of Christ and and it endures to the cross and the tomb and, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and his mercy endures because Jesus will one day return for his bride and we will be with him forever and his mercy will endure forever. We celebrate that with the psalmist, don't we? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Then as the psalm unfolds, Psalm 18, look down at verses 25 to 29. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. You may be well enough acquainted with Scripture that you already see where that spotlight is pointing. It's pointing toward the arrival of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem the last week of his earthly life. The searchlight quickly moves toward an event that will forever change human history. And so you find those words in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's great promise there about the mercy of God, the endurance of his grace. In a moment, we'll see how specific this passage is about Jesus. This is why the religious leaders would be so intimidated. We'll see that in a moment. Because for them to shout those words, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were saying, this is the one. This is the Messiah. What were they doing? They were shining the spotlight on what the searchlight had given us a dim view of. And we find that passage in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 to 38. Luke 19, 37 and 38. You'll recall that Jesus had given some of his followers some strange advice and a command. He told them, go into the city, and as you go into the city, you'll find a young colt upon which no one has ridden. I want you to go and bring that to me. If the owner or anyone says to you, what are you doing? You tell them, the master has need of that. Now let's say I tell you, I I want you to go down on the square, and, and there you'll see a Ferrari, and it'll be running, and the keys will be in it, and, and if you just go get that for me. And if a policeman or the owner anyway asks you, what are you doing? Oh, the pastor has need of this. 
Wouldn't you be kind of hesitant to take somebody's car? So they obey him, and they bring him the colt. And the king of kings enters the city of Jerusalem riding a colt. All of this is is bringing into clear view the searchlight pictures of the Old Testament. And as he enters the city, we find in verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You hear a theme from his birth? Peace, glory. It didn't end at the manger. It continued throughout his life. He's the Prince of Peace, the King of Glory. See how the spotlight shines brightly upon what the searchlight was looking for. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But go back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, in that same passage, we we get a glimpse of a deeper depth of the searchlight. If you look at verses 21 to 23, just before what we read a moment ago, it says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now when salvation is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's salvation with a little s, God delivering them out of circumstances and out of bondage or out of uh, defeat but it also points to salvation in the New Testament with a big S, the salvation through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, or this is from the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord's doing. Something you have to know about the Jewish mind. The Jewish mind and the Jewish approach to scripture was not one of chapters and verses. Those were added centuries past the initial writing and compiling of the scripture, that, that happened later. So for instance, when they quote from a psalm or they quote from Deuteronomy, they're, they're not just quoting a verse, they're drawing attention to a passage and a concept or a prophecy or a psalm. So when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were referencing Psalm 118, but but notice Psalm 118 has a graphic description of Jesus. The stone which the builders rejected 
has become the chief cornerstone. Now turn to Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Matthew 21, verse 42. Now remember, they're giving God the credit. The Lord has done this, or this is the Lord's doing. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. You find none other than Jesus quoting from that passage. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? Did you pay no attention to the Scriptures? What does he mean by Scriptures? The search lines of the Old Testament. Did you never read in the Scriptures? People were wondering who he was, questioning his identity, wondering if he was a great prophet. And the Messiah was yet to come, or was he the Messiah? So he asked them the question, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. And how it be taken from one given to another. Why? Because they rejected the chief cornerstone. What the religious leaders were blind to, even children were proclaiming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, toward the end of the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Your fingers are going to get a workout today, aren't they? 1 Peter chapter 2. find the Apostle Peter quoting from that psalm. I think that would be pretty strong evidence this is of God. Jesus himself, one of his closest disciples and apostles, verse 4. He's talking about tasting that the Lord is good and gracious. Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. He is a living stone. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That He is the living stone. He is the the major stone of the kingdom of God. We are little stones joined together to bring him praise which is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So again, it points back to the cornerstone. It also points back to a statement about the cornerstone in Isaiah. But that whole concept of the cornerstone being alluded to. And then Psalm 118 in verse 8, And a stone of stumbling and a rock 
of offense. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. The searchlights looked ahead. Then spotlighted by Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. Peter, referring back to him as the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And then it's a rock of offense and a rock of stumbling, not to all, but to those who don't believe. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you, for this has not been revealed by flesh and blood, but by God himself. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's mass confusion many times about what Jesus was referring to in that passage. Some would say he was pointing at Peter and saying, Peter, upon you I will build my church. There's a play on words there. Jesus used the word for a foundation stone when he talks about the rock he'll build the church upon. He talks about a smaller stone and the the Greek language is a different word. It, It means a small stone. It's where Arkansas is mentioned in the Bible. He's a little rock. But Jesus is the foundation stone. So even in the play on words, that doesn't work to say that Peter was the foundation stone of the church. Others would say, well, it's the confession made by Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that rock, he will build his church. I personally believe that that's part, but not all. In heaven, I want to watch the jumbotron in heaven and see the replay. But I believe that Jesus was saying, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon me and that profession of faith in me, all of that together, who I am, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it because he is the chief cornerstone. Do you see how the the picture becomes clear? A searchlight and a spotlight. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the the reality is some of you might be stumbling over that stone. You might say, well, that didn't make any sense. It it doesn't doesn't seem like what everybody else believes. It, it, It seems too simple. The scripture says many would stumble. It would be an offense and a stumbling for many. But for those who believe, they will build their house upon that rock and it will stand throughout all eternity. This obscure birth will bring joy throughout the whole earth because he is the chief cornerstone. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. You know what our job as believers is during the celebration of the Christmas season? To point to the Christ and say, this is of the Lord's doing. The Lord has done this. The Lord has come. He's not just a baby in a manger. He's Christ on the cross, the risen Savior indeed. This is the Lord's doing. So many people miss that. And we think, well, the world will connect the dots. How do you connect the dot from a red-nosed reindeer and a melting snowman 
to a babe in a manger. It doesn't work. It's all about Jesus, the cornerstone that will cause many to stumble and will be their eternal ruin and will cause others to stand in eternity with God himself. How have you responded to the cornerstone? Your eternity hinges on what you do with the baby in a manger when he becomes the savior of the world. Well, the third and final point, and I hate that we have to limit it to that, but we could we could spend a month and a half just looking at the Psalms and what it says about Jesus. But but go back to Psalm 118. I want you to, to see another verse there. One of the biggest dangers we have with the Scripture is taking a verse and pulling it out of context and putting it on greeting cards, plaques, bumper stickers, and posters, and T-shirts. Think, for instance, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can. I can do anything he wants me to do through Christ who strengthens me. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. He's not going to strengthen you to do anything you want to do. Paul was saying, I've learned how to be without. I've learned how to abound. I've learned to be by myself, alone. I've learned how to be with others. He had all of these things going on in his life, but he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It was a spiritual context of serving Christ and doing what Christ would have him to do. And he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you read the context of many of those verses, they're they're pulled out of context. You know, I I can pass this test. I can win this game. I can do this because I can do all things. No, no, no. I can do what Christ has called me to do. Just let me read the context of this verse that I want to point out. Let's go back to verse 21. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Is every day a gift from God? Yes. Is that what that verse is talking about? No. Is it wrong to sing that song, This is the Day? It needs to be celebrated even greater. Here's the deal. The word yom could mean a 24-hour period. It could mean a, a special day on a calendar. Or it could mean an appointed season. It, it could mean an era with certain characteristics about it. One Bible Note said this, though sometimes applied in a general way, this statement in its context refers to the day of deliverance which the psalmist and people celebrate. So here's here's the picture. 
the searchlight shining strongly through the tunnel of history yet to be. There is the chief cornerstone whom the builders rejected. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our sight. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, O Lord. This is the one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the reality is that verse means so much more than just have a great day. It says the era has arrived. That, that season with certain characteristic realities has arrived. What are the realities? The realities are this is the chief cornerstone. He is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the season. This is the era. This is the appointed time of God. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Salvation has come. So what's that saying? The baby in the hay is the architect of a new day. I don't want that to sound trite, but that's, that's the easiest way to say it. The baby in the hay is the architect of a new day, the chief cornerstone, the one who came in the name of the Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the appointed time. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Who would rejoice like that? Believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have come to know Him as Lord and Savior and Master. Just as the day of darkness and gloom entered the world through Adam, the day of redemption and salvation has entered the world through Jesus Christ, our cornerstone, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who is the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We have much to celebrate because of that day, that, that season, that era. Some would say, well, this is simply referring to the designing of a temple or a building or, or something other than that. It, it, it's not just referring to an architect of a temple. It's referring to the architect of eternity, and the architect of salvation. This is the day. The Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We're anticipating the arrival of someone in our family. As of right now, she is referred to lovingly as baby girl. We don't know when she'll come. We don't know the exact date of that arrival. The doctor has guessed, but it's pretty obvious he's wrong or she's wrong. We're just anticipating. Somewhere on the calendar of eternity, that birth has been determined by God. And when that moment comes, baby girl will be here. And then even if she's named, I may only call her baby girl because she's already stolen my heart through sonogram pictures. Images that are unclear but pointing to the reality. Think about this. 
those who are shining the searchlight, proclaiming it to the world in which they live, we're anticipating and awaiting the day of the arrival of the Messiah. They were, they were so excited that the kingdom of Israel was so set in anticipation that they had false labor and birth pains at times because they thought he was coming. They would celebrate the wrong one. They would deny others, but there, there was that anticipation. Then there was that glorious day that we don't know specifically on the calendar of time, but on the calendar of eternity. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. In the fullness of time, He was born. In the fullness of time. So what does all that point to? The cornerstone, the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We're, we're, we're just standing there in the crowd on the triumphal entry celebrating his arrival. We're, we're listening to what Jesus said pointing to that and we're listening to what Peter alludes to when he points back to that. But, but where is all this headed? Well, it's headed to the cross, isn't it? So if you turn to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at the spotlight first and then the searchlight. Matthew 27. Jesus has been falsely accused, arrested, betrayed, falsely tried. All of that has occurred. He is on the cross. the uncreated one, the holy one, pierced wrists and feet. He's doing what the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice. But here's what happens. Right around noontime, it tells us, on the clock of that day, in Matthew 27, verse 45, it says this. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all Just imagine in a moment when we have our closing prayer. There's no light coming in the stained glass windows. It's, it's dark. You look outside and, and it's dark. Like the, the darkness of a midnight with no moon shining. Dark. No stars twinkling. No streetlights glowing. It's dark in the middle of the day. Darkness covered the earth. What was happening in that moment? Some would say God was turning, God the Father was turning his back on the Son. Uh, uh, 
others would say other things were happening. All I know is it was such a, a, an epic moment in eternity and the suffering was so intense, not physically but spiritually because he was taking all the sin of all of humanity upon himself. But in that moment, God turned out the light and there in darkness, Christ suffered for us and God the Father flipped the switch and darkness covered the earth. The one who said, let there be light and there was light now has said, let there be darkness and there was darkness. He's the unlimited one. But here in the limitations of a human body, he is suffering physically but to a greater multiplied greater extent spiritually and he cries out with a loud voice saying Eli, Eli lama sabachthani my God my God why have you forsaken me having been on the cross for three hours unbelievable that he could shout with a loud voice. He was not weak. He was our Savior. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was the power of his love and obedience to the Father. And he cries out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where did those words originate? How did that come about? Well, turn back to Luke, I mean, Uh, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, that's how that psalm begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me or deserted me or left me here? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 centuries before a searchlight begins to shine. We hear those words. Jesus on the cross shines a spotlight on those words. Now, it's not just a distant statement. It's it's personalized in Jesus. But listen to this psalm. Because remember, they were not just pointing to a verse and a chapter. They were pointing to a passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. What was happening on the cross? The day and the night had met at the cross. But you are holy who inhabit the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. What's he talking about? Salvation with a little s. They were delivered. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. Reproached and despised of the people. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. 
they shoot out the lip and they shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you hear what's going on there? You, you can't, you don't have time for me to look up all the spotlights here. I mean, the spotlight is shining brightness, brightly in the darkness of this moment. They are putting their lip out to him. They're nodding their heads at him. They're saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. If he's from God, let God save him. What are even his enemies doing? They're fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.